The 26 children from Chowchilla, California, along with their bus driver, finally escaped from their captors. But how and why this nightmare happened to them in the first place still remained a mystery. The area was sealed off as police continued their investigation at the sand pit where 26 schoolchildren and their bus driver were held captive. As the officers sifted for evidence that could piece together the mysterious puzzle, composite drawings of two of the three suspects, based on information given by the children, were released today. Jennifer Brown Hyde and her brother Jeff were the children who assisted police sketch artists by describing their three kidnappers. Their mom, Joan, was proud they were able to help. Oh my land, they helped with the composite drawings. The sheriff's office wanted to know what they looked like and Jeff and Jennifer were instrumental in helping to identify the vans, the kidnappers themselves, and just mm. details, period. One look at the grainy black and white drawings from a 1976 newspaper, and I can see, despite the horrors they faced, Jennifer and Jeff were excellent witnesses. One of the men is said to have a chipped front tooth, hair black and curly, and a tattoo on his right forearm. The other is described as brown hair, blue eyes, with a mole on his right chin. At the sand pit, workers began digging out the buried truck body that served as the makeshift underground prison. It's expected to be completely unearthed and brought out sometime tomorrow for an inch-by-inch inch examination. But until then, until all the pieces are put together, police admit that they are stymied to explain the complete hows and whys of this whole bizarre abduction. The town of Chowchilla was upended as its residents tried to make sense of what happened, a crime that nearly killed a busload of their children, along with their beloved bus driver. The children were safe, and so was Ed Ray. But questions and uncertainty still loomed. Buried 27 of us. We didn't know if we were going to live or what. That was the voice of bus driver Ed Ray, who was 55 years old at the time of the shocking crime. Ray was hailed a hero, but his fears were evident in this interview. We was buried down under the ground. If we was up in some building up in some old house, it wouldn't have been so bad, but they had us buried just like this floor. You could have walked over top of us. You never knew 27 of us down there. Chowchilla's sense of security would never be the same. Its air of safety forever compromised. Joan Brown and Mike Marshall's mom, Carol, both felt apprehensive about letting their children ever get on a school bus again. It was really hard for either one of us to let them ride school bus again. Because the school bus is supposed to be the safest place that your kids can be other than school. If, if they can be picked off like that, off a school bus, where are they safe? The investigation now focused on who was responsible for kidnapping the 26 school children and their bus driver and burying them alive. And most importantly, why? One thing that surprised Madera County Sheriff Ed Bates was that whoever took the children never demanded a ransom. Farmers in that area, except maybe one or two of them, were, were just ordinary people. They didn't have money. I said, somebody will put up the money. 
either the state or the federal government, but we hadn't received any, any demands from anybody. Sheriff, how were you able to stay optimistic when so many families were losing their minds? Well, because I knew I was going to catch them. I knew that if anybody was going to catch these guys, I was going to be the guy that did it. My first thought was, uh, you almost have to think this way in law enforcement, who would have a motive for doing this? And then I thought, well, uh, could it have been a parent? <laughs> you know, we, we have a lot of times where the courts have decided that either the mother or the father were restrained from bothering. Could they have stopped the bus just to take their child away? So I had to interview the uh, superintendent of the school to ask them if they had any reasons of that sort going on. And then when our airplane found the bus and the children weren't there and there were transfer paint, then of course it had to be criminal. I issued a report that uh, two heavily laden vehicles, probably a SUV maybe or, or at least a, a vans. Sheriff Bates, working with the FBI, was initially discouraged by the agency from making that information public. But releasing what type of vehicles they were looking for eventually paid off. By morning, I had received a call from a woman who lived in Las Banas, which is just 15 or 20 miles away from Chowchilla. And she had observed three individuals and one van parked in front of her business. And that was just a few hours before this kidnapping actually took place. And they were acting so suspiciously that she wrote their license number down. So here we now have three guys in a van with a license number. So I called in to the Department of Motor Vehicles and they said, no, no, there's no such number as that. She told me, absolutely, that's the number. I'm a real estate lady, I know what I'm doing, I wrote it down. So I sent an FBI agent up to Sacramento to look through their records. And sure enough, for two days before, or a week before, or something, whatever it was, they hadn't been processed yet as far as being put into the system. So we found out where it was sold. They sold it under a fictitious name. But this guy who sold these things said, oh, this guy has bought vehicles before. I'll be able to dig up their records and find out who it is. So then, of course, the kids escaped themselves. And as soon as that information was released, these guys split. A week after Chowchilla's children were kidnapped, the authorities still do not know for sure who kidnapped them. There are some suspects, three young men who are not charged with anything, but who are wanted for questioning, except the authorities cannot find them. The three young men were Fred Woods, and brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld. Fred Woods was a 24-year-old young man, and brothers James and Richard Schoenfeld, 24 and 22 years old, were from uh, privileged families. KTVU-TV news producer John Fowler reported on the story at the time. He, like many others, was shocked to learn that the kidnappers were from affluent families in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Schoenfelds were sons of a prominent doctor in Menlo Park. That's an upscale suburb south of San Francisco. Woods was from a wealthy California pioneer family, which owned vast tracts of land, oil and gas, railroad, cattle ranches. Even the town of Newhall in Southern California was named Fred Woods' great-grandfather. Woods' middle name was Newhall. 
He grew up in Portola Valley. It's just a couple of miles from Menlo Park. It's、uh, an exclusive enclave for the、uh, ultra rich. Fred Woods had his own home, in fact, on his mother's 78-acre estate.、Uh, he was described by people who knew him in his early life as a loner. Rarely dated in high school, he spent a lot of money on old cars, cabooses, trucks, and other vehicles. That that was really the connection he had with the Schoenfeld brothers. Woods and the Schoenfeld brothers were after one thing: easy money. But why? Court documents showed that the trio had lost some money on a real estate deal. Actually, it was quite a bit of money. The Schoenfelds were in debt; they weren't independently wealthy. They had money, but not a lot.、Uh, they tried the classic car business to try to make up the losses.、Uh, all three of them were arrested pushing a car over a cliff in the Sierra backwoods about 15 months before the kidnapping. The charges in that case were reduced from grand theft auto to petty theft. They had good lawyers, and the DA said they were good kids. They paid a small fine and were put on probation. Their failed business dreams led them to come up with an incredibly bizarre kidnapping plan: steal a busload of little kids who couldn't fight back, and demand a ransom of five million dollars in cash. It's possible the idea was inspired by a terrifying scene from *Dirty Harry*, the popular Clint Eastwood movie filmed in the Bay Area, in which the villain, known as the Scorpio Killer, hijacks a busload of children. There was just one problem. With all the commotion surrounding the missing children and their bus driver, the phone lines were tied up all night, and it was nearly impossible to get a call through to the sheriff's department. We only had two telephone lines going into the police department, and the sheriff's substation. We had one. The kidnappers drove to a payphone and tried to call the Madera sheriff to deliver a, the ransom demand, but the sheriff's phones were jammed. And everybody in the world was trying to get information out of the Madera sheriff at the time. So the kidnappers reportedly, unbelievably, took a nap, and they drove around. And, and a couple of hours later, they tried to call again, and still could not get through. In fact, they never did get through to the sheriff's department to deliver the demands. It's, it's not clear why they didn't call anyone else. But then the news broke on the radio. That the kids and the bus driver had escaped, so the、uh, kidnappers panicked. With the phone lines all tied up and zero luck making their five million dollar ransom demand, the tired kidnappers decided to get some sleep and try again later. When they woke up, they turned on the TV and quickly realized their carefully hatched plot had fallen apart. Richard, the youngest of the Schoenfeld brothers, turned himself in to authorities eight days after the children escaped. Richard Schoenfeld drove home to Menlo Park after a few hours. Police were waiting for him because they had already figured out that that the van had belonged to Woods, and、uh, police arrested、uh, Richard Schoenfeld at a freeway off ramp. But his older brother James and the ringleader Fred Woods took their chances. And made a run for it. Fred Woods and、uh, James Schoenfeld、uh, tried to drive to Canada. 
Woods eventually got to a Vancouver hotel in a couple of days. James Schoenfeld uh, ended up in Idaho and then, then Washington State and tried twice over a period of the next two or three days to cross the border to Canada. He even bought a used pickup truck uh, in Idaho to try to get in again. He was denied uh, three times to get into Canada. And a week later, the, the news broke that Richard Schoenfeld had confessed and the kidnappers knew that their time was up. Uh, by this time, Fred wrote a letter to a friend, which was interesting, telling him of the, the circumstances and how, how tough it was for him and could he get some help. But the friend turned the letter over to the FBI. Uh, James Schoenfeld eventually gave up, drove back to the Bay Area, and he was arrested uh, a few days later. Woods was in handcuffs at the end of about two weeks, and the kidnapping was over. The case was an easy case to work, really. It didn't require a whole lot of skill. It required following your nose. And a little bit of luck. Luck. There's always luck involved, uh, but uh, I would have caught these guys luck or not, no luck. These guys were going to go to jail. Fred Woods and James and Richard Schoenfeld were heavily guarded when they left their Alameda County jail cells this morning en route to the Chowchilla Courthouse. All three suspects have been accused of the bizarre abduction of 26 schoolchildren and their bus driver. In all, they each face 43 counts of kidnapping and robbery. Security was also extremely tight in the small farming community of Chowchilla. The local sheriff said he was not too concerned about the possibility of a lynching by the townspeople. He termed them hard-working and law-abiding citizens. But he said he was afraid of what he called the Jack Ruby type. I had a, a good friend. He came to see me as soon as I got these people put in my jail and uh, closed the door says, is your secretary listening in on this? I said, no, nobody listens in on this. Not even me, I don't record nothing. So he said, well, I'm representing a uh, group of farmers and ranchers from Chowchilla. And they asked me to ask you a question. I said, what's that? If we come over and take those guys away from you and hang them, what'll you do? I said, I'll kill you. He said, Really? I said, yeah. You try to take the prisoners away from me, I'm going to kill you. And anybody else that tries to take them away from me. Now, I don't have any objections. If the courts hang them, suit me fine. But that's not how the system works. How did you become involved in this case? I started appearing at parole hearings. When someone is convicted of a crime that gets them sentenced to 25 to life, I got assigned to that unit, and this was one of the cases that came on my caseload. Jill Klinge is an assistant district attorney for Alameda County. I met with her at the Alameda County Superior Courthouse in Oakland. So this just happened to fall on your desk? Correct. And what was your first thought? I think my first thought was that the amount of evidence was overwhelming. Um, the number of victims was the largest I'd ever dealt with, and the crime was definitely one that I'd not seen before. Let's talk about the, the documents that were found in the home. There were lists, there was talk of ransom. Correct. Um, the actual listing of the evidence recovered is 
hundreds of pages. But the most um, telling evidence, I think, that was found at the home was the jack-in-the-box um, sack. If you picture when you go to a drive-thru and you get your jack-in-the-box in the bag, there was an old bag, and that's what they used to write each um, victim's name down on when they put them down into the underground moving van. There was a draft of a ransom note located. There was a piece of paper labeled plan, and on the left side was the plan for the kidnapping, and on the right side was what they would do if certain things went wrong. Everything is in great detail. We located an x-ray machine that I think they were going to use to maybe x-ray the ransom money to make sure that it wouldn't explode. There was um, plans to make a pipe bomb in case they got stopped by the CHP. There's evidence about when they purchased the vans. There's security camera video from the quarry where they see the three men enter. They see them digging in different locations. And all that occurred in 1975. So then the kidnapping's July 15th, 1976. So when you put together the purchases of the three transport vans, the tractor, the moving van that they buried, the x-ray machine and other items, you can get a timeline for the planning. They'd been planning this for over 18 months. A lot of thought went into this. This was certainly premeditated. This was not a spur of the moment. We need cash now. Let's kidnap a school bus filled with kids. No, this was extremely well thought out, if you can have a well thought out mass kidnapping. And they even did a practice run. They even went out to Chowchilla, and the bus didn't come by on the day that they had planned to do the kidnapping. So instead of saying, hey, this is probably a bad idea, they went back again. The handpicking of Chowchilla for the kidnapping was also a calculated move. Why do you think the kidnappers chose Chowchilla? I know why they did it. It was in their plans. They had uh, driven around through Kings County, and they went through Madeira County and Merced County looking for a, a remote location where there was no homes or people around there to see it, and that there was very few police patrol. We had one man patrol the whole area. So they had done some thinking about this. Driving the hostages 100 miles away from Chowchilla to what would become their underground tomb was also a deliberate part of the plan. This is one, Fred Newhall Woods IV, son of the owner of that quarry where the children were imprisoned. Young Woods is said to have been tentatively identified as the man who bought this old moving van where the kidnappers kept the children. Young Woods was in the very used car business, restoring junk cars. His father's posh estate south of San Francisco is full of old cars and trucks. Fred Woods had easy access to the California rock and gravel quarry in Livermore. That's because it was owned by his father, Fred Nickerson Woods. And Fred himself used to work there, and he knew the place well. Months before the kidnapping, security guards reported seeing three men digging in that same quarry. The security folks saw them digging the hole and uh, questioned Fred Woods at the time. And he said he was just out digging some dirt around and no, no big deal. And they said, okay, fine, because his parents owned the place. So although they were seen and recognized, no one put any of that together as something nefarious. But where did the idea for the specific amount of $5 million come from? And how did three rich kids from the suburbs think they were going to get it? Government would frequently protest that it doesn't get all the money it needs. 
But I assure you, government has the ability to always find a need for the money it gets. Two years earlier, in 1974, then-California Governor Ronald Reagan announced a $5 million budget surplus. The thinking was that the state of California wouldn't miss the money and would be willing to pay that ransom for the release of the precious children. Uh, James Schoenfeld later told me that they were desperate and ashamed to admit their debts to their parents, and so investigators say the trio began plotting a, an intricate plan to make millions. Richard Schoenfeld later said that we needed multiple victims to get multiple millions. That's a quote. And that children would be cooperative and vulnerable. Investigators say the three of them wrote a ransom note demanding two and a half million dollars, along with a very elaborate plan to deliver that money, but then upped it to five million dollars when they realized California had a budget surplus. They had lots of money. They could get more, they thought. I wanted just to follow up on the trial. The trial was moved from Madera County to Alameda County for two reasons. One, Madera County is very small. The jury pool in Madera County couldn't possibly come up with someone who didn't know the intimate details of this crime. But also, the kidnapped children were actually victims in two counties because the van was buried in Alameda County. And Alameda County, being much larger, had a greater opportunity for use of resources to bring this crime to prosecution. The jury pool is much larger, obviously. And so the prosecutors here had mountains of evidence. The kidnappers and their lawyers knew they were not going to get away with this. And the trial was very short. They all pleaded guilty. Jennifer, in jumping from the bus to the van, she tripped or slipped and injured her knee. And because she had listed as of injuries, she was allowed to testify in the actual trial. I, I didn't realize she had testified at the trial. Oh, yes. She was one of, I think, six of the children that testified. Because they were charged with bodily injury, they had to prove that there was bodily injury. One of the girls had kidney problems because of lack of bathrooms. Uh, there were, I, I don't remember the other injuries, or, or they weren't real strong physical injuries, mm. but they had to prove that there was bodily injury to get that charge in. The lawyers understood, the kidnappers understood, the judge understood, and everyone in that courtroom knew that this crime had been committed, was committed with malice, and very, very nearly resulted in the deaths of more than two dozen innocent children. They weren't going to win this case. They knew their best bet was to plead guilty and hope that eventually they could get out on parole. I think they were surprised when they were presented with life without possibility of parole as the sentence option. A year later, in 1977, the three men pled guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping. Shortly after Valentine's Day, in February 1978, they were sentenced to life in prison without parole. 
to be served at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, some 180 miles from Chowchilla. But just a few years later, in 1981, their sentences were overturned. The defense contends the injuries allegedly sustained by four children and the driver amounted only to superficial cuts sustained while trying to escape and were not inflicted by the kidnappers to terrorize the victims. So originally the kidnappers were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Obviously that changed. Can you explain how and why their sentence got changed? Originally um, they pled to all 27 counts of the kidnapping, but they disputed the findings of great bodily injury that then triggered the ability to sentence them to life without the possibility of parole. So some of the victims had to come to court, testify and face their kidnappers. And mind you, they're not adults like you're seeing them now and talking to them now. They're 10, they're eight. And they're going into court facing these men that basically buried them alive. And they testified to their injuries, and the court found that they qualified for great bodily injury. Then the Stolenfeld brothers and Fred Woods appealed, and the appellate courts determined that they did suffer some injuries. They didn't rise to the level of the definition of great bodily injury, and mental trauma was not part of the law then. So it was overturned, and based on that, they were resentenced to life with the possibility of parole. That triggered the parole hearings. And when the parole hearing started, because no one died, the maximum denial period was two years. So the children had to come back every one or two years, depending on the denial period, and do it over and over and over again. The decision was a blow to the survivors of the horrific crime. More than four decades later, Larry Park remembers it well. They did get caught, and they went to jail, and they were given life sentences, and the judge overturned it and said it's, it's not life anymore and, and we were scared again and I didn't want my bed under a window because I was afraid someone was going to reach in and grab me. A lot of them felt re-victimized by the justice system because when they heard life without the possibility of parole, especially the parents, they thought, okay, we can move past this. They're never going to get out. We're never going to have to deal with this again. But... Um, it was overturned to a life top, which means life with the possibility of parole. They felt like justice had failed them. Coming up. Why do you want him out after what he did to you? I was Fred Woods' victim for 36 hours. I was my own victim for 35 years. 